Web3 promises to change the way we interact and transact online, but today's dApps and wallets are hard to use. They are typically optimized for desktop machines and domain experts. In particular, it can be hard to bring value on-chain and hard to know what to do once you've onboarded. Charlie Andrews Jabelt is a software engineer who works on Valora, a mobile wallet, and Revo, a dApp that makes it easier to invest in DeFi and get compound interest. Charlie joins the show to talk about the engineering challenges of making Web3 more accessible. Charlie, welcome to the show. Thanks. Happy to be here. You work on Valora, which is a mobile payments app that is in many ways like things that people will be more familiar with, like Venmo or the Cash app, but it's based on the Celo blockchain. And so I think it's worth starting out by just explaining why the apps like Venmo and Cash app these apps for sending money from person to person that are critical to a lot of people's lives. What are some of the shortcomings of those platforms? Sure. So, you know, these apps are very good for specific use cases. So Venmo, for instance, is really good for people who have a bank account and only want to transact with peers in the United States, right? But if you have a friend in Italy, or maybe you're trying to send remittances back home to your family who may live in a foreign country, you know, outside of the United States, you just can't do that on Venmo. Or if you happen to be trying to pay someone who doesn't have a bank account, maybe they're an immigrant without status, then you can't transact with them either. And so there's really quite a few people in the world who that leaves out, right? There's actually a billion people is a statistic that I've heard, who don't have a bank account, but who have a smartphone. And so that's a lot of people. And so one aim of Valora is to be a global decentralized Venmo that can include some of those folks. So the usage of a decentralized Venmo makes a lot of sense. It's built on the Celo blockchain. Let's go into the Celo blockchain and explain why it's uh, notably different than other crypto platforms like Ethereum or Bitcoin. Yeah, sure. I can talk a little bit about Celo. So Celo's main differentiator from these other blockchains is Celo is a mobile first blockchain. So most of the early users of blockchains have, have used desktop computers to interact with the blockchain, which makes a lot of sense. You know, desktop computers are like very developer friendly and tend to be more powerful. So maybe you can run a node. There's a lot more storage, uh, network connectivity, et cetera. But if you really want to deliver on the social impact potential of blockchains in general, for example, like supporting the unbanked and the financial system, you know, uh, censorship resistance, things like that, and remittances without you know, crazy high fees, which are in the tens of percentage points in a centralized financial system that we have, as well as, you know, I could really go on, right? <laughs> Supporting folks who have a highly variable currency uh, to the point where they have to immediately run to the grocery store to buy groceries because they hold their value better than their native currency does, right? Like these are some of the social impact outcomes that we want to see with blockchain tech, right? But 
Acelo is pretty focused on delivering on those. And so what the founders of the Acelo blockchain noticed is that a mobile-first blockchain would be extremely useful in bridging the gap there because there's a lot of people who have smartphones but not bank accounts, right, who maybe don't have a ton of hardware but would benefit greatly from being looped into a financial system. So the technical innovation to make Celo mobile-first includes a few things. One is Celo offers this ultra-light client capability where you know, there's data connectivity issues with trying to run a node on a mobile client, right? Because particularly in like a developing world use case, which is something that Celo is trying to optimize for, you may have like a pretty expensive, uh, limited data plan, right? So if you want to run a traditional light client, you're going to need to download many thousands of block headers to be able to sync trustlessly with the blockchain, but one like really cool innovation that Celo has, has found is the ability to run an ultralight client. And that involves publishing a ZK snark to allow syncs with very low data. So you can essentially find the current validator set with a like a constant space just download of this of the ZK snark. And then from there, there's a small number of block headers they need to download on top of that to be able to sync with the latest status of the chain. So ultralight client is one innovation, allows for mobile first chain. Another is a phone number to wallet address mapping that's done with some fancy <laughs> cryptography and, and system design innovation that allows that to be done without exposing phone numbers to mass harvesting, but allows you to send money to someone if you know their phone number even before they've set up a wallet, which is really cool. So I think that's like actually enables a lot of growth potential as well. But it's a big usability benefit if you're trying to interact with the blockchain from a smartphone. Uh, maybe the entire like wallet address for your friend isn't really like viewable on your screen or can't easily be compared to expected value, right? So, but if your friend's phone number is in your contacts list, then you can send money to them as easily as sending a text. So that's pretty cool too. And also, you know, a little bit separately from that, but also highly useful uh, in terms of like a user experience or peer-to-peer payments is Celo is proof of stake and also happens to be carbon negative. And so what I mean by that, so proof of stake, I think as a lot of listeners know, is a consensus mechanism that allows for like thousands of times or many orders of magnitude, less computation to go into publishing every block because there's not this like competition to waste energy that you see with proof of work chains, right? And so with the proof of stake chains, it also reduces the carbon, uh, yeah, it reduces carbon emissions, as well as allows us to publish blocks every five seconds, which is really good for a peer-to-peer payments system, right? And we're able to achieve a carbon negative blockchain by essentially purchasing tokenized carbon credits with every block that's produced. That was kind of a lot, but <laughs> at a high level, Cell is a mobile-first chain with ultralight client capabilities. It has this phone number to wallet address mapping that allows you know, to send money as easily as sending a text, and is a proof-of-stake and carbon-negative blockchain. So it's, I think, better positioned to deliver on the social impact promise of uh, blockchain technology and DeFi in general than a lot of other chains. So... The proof of stake system that is built off of on the Celo blockchain, do you do anything notably different than 
the proof of stake algorithms that have been designed for the Ethereum blockchain? Are there any notable differences? Yeah, so you know, I'll qualify this by saying I'm an enthusiast and you know, obviously build on top of the blockchain, but I'm not an L1 engineer. So take this with a grain of salt. <laughs> but I think that Celo's like proof of stake consensus is similar to a lot of like popular mechanisms out there right now, like Tendermint, etc. So I, I think that yeah, I could speculate as to why it's like taken longer for Ethereum to make this switch than some of the chains that started out with proof of stake. But at a high level, I think yeah, it, uh, it's similar to what you're seeing in in other projects. Well. We don't need to focus too much on Celo itself, but I would like to just discuss uh, Celo as a platform. So when you build an app on top of Celo, like when you build Valora, can you talk about the interface that you need to deal with? I guess the what are the places where you're actually communicating with the blockchain itself? Yeah, that's a good question. So I guess there's a few like special considerations for a wallet dApp in particular, and especially a non-custodial wallet, right? Because your system probably looks a lot different if you're custodying the user's funds, right? You can maybe offer kind of a web two like experience in a lot of ways, but for a non-custodial wallet, the user's really in charge of their own funds. Like we don't have some database with users' private keys, right? It's all on the user's device. And so there's some interesting practical considerations to keep in mind there. So one of which is that users like actually submit information directly to the blockchain whenever they like are trying to complete a transaction, whether they're like sending money to a friend or interacting with another another dApp. And so we started off by extending the Go Ethereum light client. And so that has been pretty useful for securing the user's private keys, for instance. And then we've kind of built around that some additional features that we would like to see, right? Like interaction with Celo's Otis protocol, which stands, I think, for, (laughs) I actually don't need to like unpack the acronym very often. (laughs) I think it stands for Oblivious Decentralized Identity Service. And so that's essentially what allows you to query wallet addresses from users like contact phone numbers. So that's a smart contract that it has a like built-in integration with our with our app. And there's a few others, for instance, Mento is another Celo-specific smart contract that offers exchanges between Celo, the native currency, and stablecoins like US, uh, CUSD and CEURO or CREAL, which is the native currency in Brazil. And so... Yeah, so there's this kind of interesting mix of trying to always allow the user to self-custody their funds while offering functionality by like letting them interact natively with uh, smart contracts. So let's go a little bit deeper into currency conversion stuff. So if you want to build a Venmo app that works across the world, then you obviously need to be able to convert Celo to all these different other currencies. So if I want to, for example, send, let's say I have USD and I want to send money to somebody in Nigeria, presumably there has to be some conversion of USD to Celo to, well, actually, I guess I should ask up front, like to what extent do you offer the currency conversion yourself? 
do you have the fiat to cryptocurrency conversion built in? Yeah, so fiat to crypto and the other way around crypto fiat is really important for like practical end user use cases, right? So bring like the the simple process of bringing value on and off chain means a great deal to people, <laughs> right? Whether you're just trying to invest in DeFi or you're trying to send money to someone who then needs to go pay rent, right? Or or pay for their groceries. So there is a lot of effort uh, separately in the cell ecosystem to promote payments and make it really easy for businesses to take payments directly in crypto. But for now, pretty much, you know, the, the main expenditures that people have are done in fiat currencies, ones that are, you know, kind of are centralized, run by a government and accepted as legal tender throughout that country. So that that is something that we care a great deal about is like facilitating that conversion. And we've seen that in geographies where there are better options, there's a lot more user activity, which is exactly what you'd expect, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, we do offer that. Currently, Celo in general offers on-ramps in 150 countries. Actually, a lot fewer of those, I think something around 23 of those have both on-ramps and off-ramps. It's a big area investment for us. And so one project that I've helped lead is called Fiat Connect, which has been a project to create a universal standard interface for fiat to crypto exchanges and vice versa and crypto to fiat. And so what we've tried to do is enable integrations with payment providers that facilitate this exchange of fiat and crypto to be able to add more regional availability more quickly. Can you describe some of the engineering around managing fiat to crypto mutations? Yeah, sure. So I can speak to this from kind of an integration standpoint. So, and I can also explain why an integration is usually necessary for offering this kind of exchange. So the reason an integration is usually necessary is because it takes a long time to get licenses to handle money in a particular geography, right? Like in New York, it takes literally years to establish a license to be able to exchange fiat and crypto. And so as Valora, you know, Valora aims to have global reach. And so we could spend literally all of our time just trying to get licenses and playing this turf war of going country by country, or we could use integrations to offer regional availability more quickly. And so that's the route that we've taken is kind of separate concerns in a way and integrate with businesses that offer this as their main product. And so that's enabled us to grow a lot more quickly. On the other hand, managing a bunch of bespoke integrations in an app is extremely difficult. In fact, it sort of has this like pathological, super linear relationship <laughs> in terms of effort required versus geos supported. So every time you want to add a new set, you know, a new geo, or maybe like a set of geos, if a partner is particularly good, maybe they have licenses in five, six countries, um, you need to integrate with a new API. And so that's why we've launched this Fiat Connect project where we've gotten several providers together and looked at several others that we've already integrated with or tried to integrate with in the past. And we we thought, you know, like, is there anything that we can thread the needle through here? Like, is there a universal interface that we can propose? And we found that actually there is. And so we launched an open source project that establishes 
an open API specification for fiat to crypto exchange providers. And what we found is that providers are typically very excited about this because it enables them to sort of jump the line and not have to wait for us to go, you know, bespoke integration by bespoke integration until it's finally highest priority to add whatever region that they were trying to support from the get-go, right? Because they can just implement this one interface and we can add them in a more like configuration-driven way. So the Fiat Connect project you're describing, does that make it simpler for any potential app that wants to have Fiat to Crypto conversion rather than having to go through all these jurisdiction by jurisdiction legality it just it simplifies it for a bulk a bulk set of currencies that's right so there's kind of two large benefits here it sort of systematizes the process of performing an integration right because uh, in terms of engineering effort you only have to worry about integrating with one api and you get many providers out of the box right so that's a big benefit and then as you were saying it kind of removes the urgency of getting licenses yourself in these countries right because you know at, at a certain point like we started wondering like some of these apis are so difficult to integrate with what if we just tried to get the licenses ourselves but that i think posed a, a major distraction in terms of product focus and uh, kind of logistical you know hassle <laughs> right so i think it's much better to have this like separation of concerns to be able to operate as a non-custodial wallet in many different geos. Yeah. When you look at the range of things that people can do with Valora, there's not just money transfer, there's also purchasing NFTs or just buying and holding crypto. What's the most popular application? And maybe we can go into the engineering behind some of the most popular stuff. So what's kind of interesting is that that's actually a very difficult question to answer <laughs> because, you know, it kind of depends on what your metric is for popularity. So one thing that we did at Valora is we wanted to be data-driven about the kind of features that we support in our app, right? And we also wanted to add value to our users as fast as possible. So what we did is we launched a dApps page and in the dApps page, we listed any dApp on Celo can apply to be listed on the dApps page just by submitting a pull request because Valora is entirely open source. And so we essentially exposed a configuration file where you could add your dApp. And if you pass basic usability reviews, you can be listed there and Valora users can interact without leaving the Valora app just by opening up a web view. And so what's been really interesting from that is we've been able to gather data on kind of what you're asking about, which is like, what are some of the most popular ways of interacting with the blockchain once you've created a wallet, right? And what we found is that typically the most popular ways are whatever the user sees first. <laughs> and so the, the top few dApps got the most traffic. What was also interesting, and I'm totally going to flatter myself here, but <laughs> is that when we spotlighted dApps and we measured you know, when a dApp was spotlighted, how often was it clicked, that a couple dApps did better than the others. And those dApps were particularly for investing in DeFi with low effort, which is kind of what you'd expect, right? Someone heard about cryptocurrency as a great way to, to earn, 
and they go in, create this wallet, they want to be able to make some money, right? <laughs> and so, especially in this like single player mode where they're not like transacting with peers and activating those use cases, right? They're just going on dApps, like they're they're interested in in the FI part of DeFi, the financial <laughs> opportunity. And so I actually wrote one of these dApps that we added on the side, and it's called Revo. And Revo makes it very easy to invest in DeFi with high yields. And so Revo had the good fortune of, of winning this contest that we launched of which dApps could perform the best, in particular, be the most popular when they were featured in that top spot to sort of de-bias the data set from some of the like order effects that we saw with, with the like first app being the most popular. And so, yeah, so I think Revo in some ways is an archetype of a type of DAP that's very popular right now from the data we have. Yeah. So maybe we could dive into the engineering of Revo. Can you talk through some of the most difficult engineering problems that you've had to solve when building it? Yeah, sure. So I can also say a little bit more about like what Revo is to give people some context. So Revo is a dApp or a decentralized app that makes it easy to get started with yield farming and earned compound rewards. So yield farming is essentially a way of incentivizing people to provide liquidity for a token. Uh, and so that's very useful if you're launching a new token on the blockchain, because blockchain can, can consist of many of many tokens, you want people to be able to acquire and sell your token. And so typically you'll list it on a decentralized exchange like Uniswap or on Celo. There's a couple of exchanges. Uniswap's actually coming soon to Celo, but there's also UbeSwap, which is a fork, as well as Sushi, which is also a fork of Uniswap, <laughs> as people probably know. And so you can stake the token in a pair on Uni or Ubiswap or Sushi, and then people are able to trade for that token from whatever token they start with. Maybe something they cashed into, maybe a stable coin, uh, which is typically user's preference for cashing in. So when you're first launching one of these pairs, though, typically people don't want to get started right away until you give them an extra boost. And so there are these contracts, they're called staking rewards contracts or yield farms, and those give you essentially free money for staking liquidity. <laughs> and so that can be very popular, but yield farming is actually kind of a pain from a UX standpoint because it's hard to get started. There's like, I think, 10 or 12 different transactions that you need to post to the blockchain to get started. And it is very difficult to earn compound rewards. So the rewards that you get need to be claimed manually and then those 10 or 12 transactions need to be repeated every single time you want to reinvest in the original investment, right? To get compounding on the rewards that you're earning. And so I feel that when I first started yield farming and, and checking it out, I was very disappointed by this <laughs> because I'm not an expert in terms of investment, but I feel one of the first things that you learn, you know, like in high school, people tell you like, invest now because compound interest is going to save your life, you know, <laughs> like I should have invested younger. And so, of course, you had no money at that point, but besides the point. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I thought like, well, what a mistake to have to settle for this non-compounding rewards status quo. And so I wanted to build something better. So I got together with a couple of teammates to to do that. And we came out with Revo. And so your original question, though, is you know, what are some of the technical challenges involved with building Revo? 
And there's a lot there. What we wanted to accomplish was a system that offered negligible fees. Because what we found is that there's a couple of auto compounding platforms out there that already exist. For instance, on Celo, there's AutoFarm. There's also Beefy. These are multi-chain projects. They're like very established. But they offered performance fees that were like 3 or 4%, which I thought was outrageous. I mean, if you invest in traditional finance, uh, even if you use a robo-advisor like Betterment or Wealthfront, the fees are like one-tenth of that. They're like 0.2, 0.3%. And so I didn't think that was really the best that could be done. And so we wanted to improve on that. So I guess the challenge there was coming up with a way of gas efficiently keeping track of user balances, right? And so essentially what we ended up doing was we pooled together all user investments so that they can all be reinvested together. And one really cool thing that came out of that was to keep track of how much a user had invested, we essentially issued a token to them at the investment time at a certain exchange rate of liquidity provider tokens, which represent your share in a in a liquidity pool to the current value of this like farm points token is what we called it. And one thing that was really cool that we actually didn't expect as we were like working on this, you know, auto compounding feature is that by issuing this token to gas efficiently like reinvest the user's rewards and keep track of their stake in the yield farm, it's very being a token meant it's something that we can actually then stake in another liquidity pool, <laughs> which we started talking about as like meta liquidity, because the token itself, you know, can be exchanged for an LP token, which lives on one liquidity pool on one level, right? But then there's this higher level where, you know, your share in the yield farm is tokenized and can thus be put in its own liquidity pool. And so, you know, in, in some ways you start to see a little bit of like, scary situation where it's like, it's turtles all the way down. (laughs) But on the other, there's a real opportunity there where if that uh, farm point token is itself staked in a liquidity pool, that means you can cut out that getting started process of 10 to 12 transactions. It takes forever. Even on a fast block time, low gas chain like Celo, it still takes forever, like 50 seconds is a long time. And <laughs> that's if you know exactly when you're doing and the UI updates instantly, which never does. And so we brought all of that down to only two transactions needed to get started. There's an approve and then there's a swap. And so that was the second innovation that we sort of came across as we were building out this auto compounding platform is we also made it lightning fast to get started. And so that's why we chose this like goofy lightning bolt for our icon <laughs> and we called it Zapins. And we we're very excited about the UX that we are able to offer in, in today's product with Revo. The mechanics of staking and basically farming your liquidity, those are not easy for a lot of novice crypto users. So as that capability becomes more and more available to the retail investor. How does that change interest rates on accounts that would previously be thought of as like savings accounts? I mean, how does the average interest bearing account change? So it sounds like there's two points you're kind of making there on like 
a usability point where, you know, yield farms are kind of complicated and like maybe difficult to use. And then there's a point on like, is there maybe financial opportunity there? Is that kind of how you're thinking about it? Yeah, I'm just trying to understand the overall impact of, you know, accessible yield farming to the average retail investor. I think that's a very good point. So, you know, one thing that's been cool with Revo is that we've seen like very concrete examples of this like low cost auto compounding service making a big difference. And that was when we launched a PACT Cello farm. So PACT is a governance token for impact market, a UBI protocol on Cello, and Cello is the native token. So the staking rewards contract was loaded up with a pretty large number of rewards that offers like pretty good APY. So on UbeSwap, the decentralized exchange where this pair is listed, you get about 120% APY. And that assumes compounding very infrequently, which I think is accurate for people have to manually compound their rewards. What we found is that when we listed this pair on Revo with auto compounding that's done several times a day, the APY shot up to 160%. So I think the practical user impact there is very large, right? I think to me, it seems obvious that you would want the 160% APY over the 120, provided that certain guarantees are met, like reliability. So I think that the user impact is there. When it comes to usability, I think that, yeah, I think that's a good thing to focus on when it comes to yield farming, right? Because when I have to explain yield farming to a new person, like it's very difficult, right? (laughs) Particularly someone who hasn't done anything in DeFi. And so I I wrote an entire blog post to try to bridge this gap that I could just link people to, but that's not really, we can't expect that from your average retail investor, right? So I think we need more more like innovation to simplify this with the explicit goal of making the UX more reasonable. So you don't need to become this like expert in a system of smart contracts in order to interact with it. I mean, I'm somebody that doesn't understand yield farming super well myself. Is there risk in yield farming when I stake my currency? Is there some actual risk of losing it? Yes and no. (laughs) So there's a few different types of risk involved. And yeah, I should probably say here, like I'm not a financial advisor. Um, (laughs) So this is not financial advice, but this is one enthusiast to another. I can tell you what I've learned. So there are a few different types of risk involved. One risk is smart contract risk, right? Like there are certain scam tokens out there or tokens with accidental vulnerabilities that can result in the loss of funds, right? There was a token I invested in a few months back that was getting these like consistently 400% APY. Just, it was just, it was so consistently 400%. I wondered like, how on earth are they keeping that? And it turned out the way they were able to keep that, this was called Lapis, by the way, it was just a scam token. They offered sort of a backdoor in the smart contract where they could burn anybody's token if they were an admin. And so they could just artificially reduce the supply and keep the apparent APY in the yield farm really high. And so doing your own research is really important with these projects and making sure there's like a serious development group. And actually just looking at the smart contract, I was so embarrassed when someone showed a screenshot of the code where this was there because it was just, it was plain as day that this was a scam token, yet I, like many other people, had had been duped. 
And so, yeah, that's definitely something to look out for. Like there are definitely still scams out there that are worthy of some attention. And then there's accidental vulnerabilities, which can take place from time to time, which is why Revo has gone through smart contract audits to reassure users on both fronts, right, that we're not a scam ourselves, (laughs) that there's a third party group that also believes we're not scams, and also to look for some of the vulnerabilities that we may have missed. And so beyond the kind of world of like hacks and scams, though, there's also with yield farming a risk of impermanent loss. So even without losing any tokens, you could lose value if the tokens you happen to have invested in plummet in value, right? For whatever reason, it can happen. It happens from time to time. And so if you're investing in stablecoins, this is very unlikely, right? The stablecoins, you know, the whole point of their existing is that they don't lose their peg. It can still happen, but it's very unlikely. On the other hand, there's variable valued tokens, even Sellos native currency can sometimes two weeks later be worth half the amount. And so it's something worth thinking about and building into your risk profile and not investing more than you can afford to lose. So anyway, taking off my like advice hat there, but <laughs> those are some main types of risks to like be aware of there. Coming back to Valora, you know, there's obviously a lot of decentralized applications at this point, a lot of various, mostly financial applications. And the apps that are wallets plus some functionality like Valora, like you have the ability to you know, not only buy crypto, but you also have NFTs and other applications. It's something like a modern browser. And I'd like to get your perspective on what that means from an engineering perspective you know, because dApps don't really have as uh, straightforward of a universal interface as like web applications where you can just access them through the browser. So how does that lead to how you design your interface and, and think about future-proofing Valora? Yeah, that's a really excellent question. And I think if I had perfectly solved that, you know, Valora would have already won, right? <laughs> and so it, it's one that we're like paying pretty close attention to is like, how is the like very concept of a wallet evolving? What should it do? And, you know, how can we stay on top of the like latest and greatest like new blockchain tech that's coming out and make sure our users have easy access to it, kind of route them to it right away. And so the approach that we've kind of taken is we have published this dApps page that has 20 or 30 dApps that anyone can easily add to and instantly get access to all Valora users, which is a large number. It's the largest wallet on the Celo blockchain. And so what we've been able to do from that is keep track of where the tides are turning, right? Like what kinds of dApps are people using? What do they want? And so I'm very excited by this because I think that like my gut instinct for what wallets should do and like how blockchains and DeFi in general can add value for people is pretty bad when it comes to like global scale. <laughs> like I think I'm a pretty decent product thinker when it comes to like anticipating people's needs that are like pretty similar to me. But the drop off is huge, especially when you are like thinking about some of the like global use cases. There are some features that don't even show up on Valora for me because I just don't live in a place where that particular off-ramp is available, for instance. So I don't interact with even the same app that some other people are. So anyway, I think 
really, my answer is maybe going to sound like a little bit of a non-answer, but I think it's just to be a hawk, not in terms of some like aggression. <laughs> it sounds weird, but like a, I don't know, an eagle, some sort of well-sighted bird <laughs> that is paying very close attention to the data and user behavior. And one thing that, you know, as an aside, you don't need a DApps page like Valora. Like I think it's very valuable, but you don't necessarily need that to see where the tides are shifting because in DeFi, particularly on public blockchains where you can see every transaction, that's something, it's a privacy coin, it's probably a different story. But typically on a public blockchain, you can see every transaction that every single person on it is doing, right? And so it may be hard to see what wallets are owned by the same person, but you can get a general sense of what dApps are taking off. And so I think that's like a huge opportunity and one that should absolutely be taken advantage of to get a sense of where the winds are turning. So dApps that I've seen today, mostly things relating to buying and selling currency or financial abstractions, like, you know, complex securities. Is that kind of the end state of the decentralized app ecosystem? Or, you know, does it get into, do you think this actually evolves into, or I guess what I should ask is more, what does it take to move beyond just sort of the narrow scope of dApps that we've seen thus far? You know, I love that question, and I wish more people were asking that. <laughs> I think there's a lot of attention paid to this, like, virtual casino, you know, that is cryptocurrency and blockchain tech and DeFi to an extent right now. But I also believe in the promise of blockchain, right? Like, the social vision is beautiful, right? It's this censorship-resistant, globally accessible, anyone with enough compute, which is hopefully, like, vast majority of people can participate even if they don't have you know, some state sponsored <laughs> to give them recognition or a bank account, you know, like a big institution to give them a bank account. And I think there's so much opportunity there when it comes to even just the simple process of peer-to-peer payments, right? We improved a great deal with cross-border payments in particular. And so I think that what will it take to get us past this virtual casino? I probably can't give an exact answer, but I think that it's going to take the same kind of like real, you know, user-driven design thinking that it's taken to solve some of the bigger problems in Web2, right? Like there's nothing special about blockchain tech in terms of like how we can go about designing amazing products, right? Like we need to just be obsessed with the end user and actually learn what a greater set of people's problems are beyond just the kind of initial few things that we've thought of as low-hanging fruit that largely replicate existing systems in the financial system. Now, I say all that and kind of bash the virtual casino for a bit, but also just want to say that I really think there's opportunity there as well, right? <laughs> like if you can just invest in some like betterment robo-advisor, pay low fees and expect your earnings to grow over time, be able to retire safely, like that's really great for you, but not everyone in the world can do that, right? So having some more financial primitives exist, it's not a bad thing. I think it's a really good thing actually. As long as there are things that people can rely on, you know, and, and, and serious projects, like I think there's a lot of potential there. But I agree with you that, or I don't know if you were stating this opinion, but <laughs> I believe that there's more that can be done and, and that. And I look forward to a future where our cryptocurrencies can be put to work to do more than just transact and invest. We've been talking at a pretty high level. So, you know, as we wind down, I'd like to at least get into closer to the metal engineering question. 
Can you walk me through the life cycle of a payment on Cello? Yeah, sure. Oh, gosh, this sounds like an interview question. <laughs> so a payment on Cello essentially is a message. And this is true of all blockchains, right? So Cello was was actually a fork of Ethereum at the very beginning in terms of the code base, not of the blockchain itself. So there's no like shared history in terms of blocks. But the code base was a fork. So the way people think about Ethereum is a very like valid way to think about Cello to a large extent. And so in terms of what it means to transact on Cello, it essentially means to publish a message to the blockchain, which you know at an even lower level means to designate a from address and a to address, to sign the transaction and cryptographically with the user's private key to say like, you know, <laughs> this sender like really does have permission to use funds from the from address and to designate a gas currency so that validators can take a reward for publishing this to the blockchain kind of using the compute. And so one thing actually I forgot to mention about Celo, it's really cool, is that you can also designate in addition to a gas fee, you can designate a gas currency. You can pay for gas and stable coins. And this is actually really cool because that means that a user can kind of hit the ground running once they've been able to cash in. And most users, in fact, it's around like nine to one, prefer to cash in with stable currencies. I can't blame them. Like cashing straight into a variable value token is a little scary. Like you immediately see your funds begin to move. <laughs> and so it's nice to cash into CUSD, for instance, which is what I prefer to cash into because I live in the United States. And to know that before I've really like pulled the trigger on an investment that I have approximately the same value that I started out with from my bank account. And so anyway, that's just an aside and kind of a nifty benefit of Cello is that you're able to designate a gas currency as well. And then from there, you send this information to a node. So you can either use like a peer-to-peer -peer strategy for that and publish to whatever nodes in your area or designate one node, which can be more data efficient. But yeah, it takes a certain amount of trust in terms of censorship resistance. And then that node, that full node, passes it along to a validator, which then publishes it to the chain. So it's still a little bit high level, but a little more, you know, hopefully the detail you were looking for in terms of how a transaction gets published. And is there any way to send money from person to person without hitting the blockchain? Not crypto. <laughs> yeah, I suppose you could share private keys. I wouldn't advise it, but I suppose if you first sent money to some dummy account that you didn't care to use anymore, then you could just provide the private key. Then both of you would be able to spend the funds, at least until one of you takes them out. A nicer, so like one nice thing that Cello offers is an escrow contract that allows you to send money to someone who doesn't have an account yet by just sending it and designating a phone number for someone who should be able to claim it. And so then someone can actually, in a decentralized way, verify their phone number and claim the money that you sent to invite them to start using Cello. And so actually, I think that's really cool. And it's like kind of a cool growth mechanism as well that is built into Valora. So that's still interacting with the blockchain, but it's not requiring someone to set up a wallet in advance, which may be like one part of that question is like, does someone need a wallet? And the answer is actually no, not on Cello. Got it. Yeah, I was just curious if there was kind of a way to just 
use the private ledger of Valora itself, but I guess that would to some extent defeat the purpose. Anyway, to close off, I just like to get a perspective on the future. So how do you see Valora looking differently in five years? I think Valora will probably look completely different in five years. <laughs> I think that there's a bit of a, to give you some context, I think there is a choice to be made and soon for Valora on whether Valora will continue to to optimize on a peer-to-peer user experience or whether Valora will lean into this DeFi wallet vision of kind of focusing on in some, sometimes we call it like a single player mode where like maybe we don't have the network effects that are going to be necessary to bootstrap like a really effective and vibrant peer-to-peer network just yet, right? And so maybe this is something that in the future that it reminds me of this saying that I've heard that if you have the right idea, but it's too early, it's the wrong idea. (laughs) And I think it's possible that peer-to-peer payments might be that for us. And that this like single player mode and focusing on like, well, how do I, you know, give a user a ton of value on things they can do entirely on their own, even if all of their friends don't have Valora and and won't accept their invite. And so I think it's possible that Valora will become more like that. On the other hand, we could pivot in the opposite direction and double down on a peer-to-peer payment system and try to get more businesses to adopt Cello as a form of paying for goods, right? And there's some exciting stuff being done there, but, you know, sort of as an aside, by the C-Labs and the Cello Foundation in building out technology to do sort of an under-the-hood like at time of purchase, transfer of crypto to fiat that businesses can rely on. So they don't actually even need to accept Cello for someone to be able to pay with Valora. So I think that's a little bit of a choice that we need to make though, right? And optimizing in one direction or the other. And I think that will greatly impact this outcome of what Valora will look like in five years. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and congrats on the success. Thanks. Yeah. Enjoyed talking with you as well, Jeffrey. Hope you have a great weekend.